Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. And again, I want to talk this morning and next Sunday about two phrases in the account of Jesus' birth which are so pertinent and so relevant, because we love that word, so relevant to the needs of our world that it is amazing that more people aren't drawn to the message. When we think about what God is telling us through the incarnation, what Jesus is doing in coming to earth, that message and what God says in these next two weeks that we're going to study is, is so important for what mankind needs that it seems like everybody should respond. But in so many ways, people everywhere this morning are not responding, and instead they are frightened and restless, full of fear, full of doubt, full of anger, full of angst, and and most aren't sure how to deal with it. Now, this condition of humanity is not new. In fact, we can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We see it all throughout the biblical record that, that people throughout history have always sought ways to overcome their fear and overcome their, their, um, their doubt and, and anger. And they've tried to work around the Lord in doing that. They've tried to find different solutions and different measures of control and satisfaction uh, in order to resolve this problem. Again, it's all throughout the biblical history. You can look at the fall where Adam and Eve rebelled against God's word. That's exactly what they did. And they, they tried to become gods. They bought into the lie that Satan said that you can become your own God. You don't need that God. And then we see it at Babel when man builds a tower and tries to ascend up to heaven and usurp the authority of God and, and take over and, and replace God. We see it in the Old Testament all throughout where even God's chosen people are, are worshiping false gods and they're giving credit to gods that they create with their own hands and saying, you're the one who saves us even though they had just made it themselves. It's shown in man's uh, blatant love, uh, excuse me, love of, of blatant sin and outlandish sin, constantly looking for pleasure, constantly looking for some kind of comfort. And it's seen in Jesus' day and the arrogance and self-righteousness of the religious leaders who didn't want to hear God in flesh, who didn't want to hear the word of God, and they, and they chose to love their own knowledge. And that continued throughout the first century with the Gnostics in, in Asia Minor. All about my knowledge, all about what I know. And it's seen now in our current culture with just outright disregard for God. Just outright rejection of Jesus and, and love of self and, and looking for a myriad of, of alternatives to try to replace the need for God. And yet when we study the course of history, and I, I love to study history because history teaches us. When we look at the disillusionment and the, and the failure of even the most successful people in history, it becomes clear that all these options that man is looking for fall far short of relieving that internal pain. There, there's not a solution man has come up with for, for the spiritual discomfort in his heart that, that says, I don't have the answers. I can't solve my, my sin. I can't get my own salvation. There's nothing that's bringing me joy. There's nothing that brings me peace. That's why so many people this morning 
are living what I call an atmosphere of pervasive fear. That is the culture. That is the world this morning. There is an attitude. There is, a, there is an aura of pervasive fear. And we've talked through the years about some of the contributing factors to that fear. We've talked about the uncertainty of world politics and terrorism and health issues, especially as the population ages and hits middle age and beyond. We've talked about financial insecurity and the instability of of broken families and, and the job market. From a spiritual standpoint, we may feel it in terms of not pleasing the Lord and not knowing and trusting his leading because faith is based on a lack of fear. Faith is based on a lack of personal control. That's why it's so hard for us. That's why sometimes we don't want to to yield to the Spirit because we don't want to give in and trust the Lord and take our hands off. And it's seen in some ways in our worry about spiritual warfare and our our worry about opposition, which is going to increase in our families and in our society, in in terrorism, all those types of things. We're, We're struggling with this. And even the world recognizes it. I did some research this week and came upon an article written last year in Rolling Stone magazine that was called The Age of Fear. And the article was written before the election and and obviously considering the source, it was slanted toward the left's fear of Donald Trump being elected as president potentially. but But there were some great insights in the article and I read it a couple times this week. Because it, after it, it concluded that we've never lived in a better time of wealth and long life and education and a reduction of crime and poverty, the question that Rolling Stone, the most secular magazine we could probably find, right? The question that Rolling Stone asked was, even though this is seen as the safest time in human history, why are we all so afraid? And I thought that was great insight. One answer that they came up with was that we're living in the most fear-mongering time in human history. And the reason for this is that there's a lot of power and money available to individuals and organizations who can perpetuate these fears. That's a little socialist for my taste. But but the thought here is that the media and insurance companies and corporations and politicians know that we're living in fear. They know that that fear is easy to manipulate and that we're concerned that we're going to miss opportunities for abundance, so they exploit it. They market it. They target it. They advertise to it to try to bring solutions to our fear. Think about all the advertisements you watch on television or the Internet. They're all designed to tell you you're not having enough. You, you don't have answers. We will give you answers if you will buy our product. And one of the most insightful parts of the article was how it delineated between fear and anxiety. Fear was defined in the article as the response to a present threat. In other words, what happened in Las Vegas? People are at a concert. Somebody starts shooting from a hotel. That's, that's a fear situation. That's something that's happening in the moment that's a threat to safety. That produces fear. Anxiety is a more complex and, and manipulative response to something that might happen. 
It's an anticipation that there may be a threat, like being at the concert, not knowing that there's a shooter, and worrying something might happen. So fear is the actual threat. Anxiety is the anticipation of the threat. And you say, well, it's kind of a small distinction. Well, not really. In fact, it's everything. Because fear is about a certain danger, and anxiety is about the experience of uncertainty. One researcher concluded by saying, the longer we delve into our fears, the more I see fear as a response to uncertainty. Because when people are unsure and not in control of their safety, of their finances and families and possessions, their natural inclination is to grasp for certainty. And they came up with a term for this. It's called probability neglect. Probability neglect means that people are emotionally stirred by something, they imagine it's going to happen, and they fear the outcome even though it doesn't really happen. So there's a sense of, oh no, this might happen, I'm going to put full fear and full anxiety into it, and I'm going to act like it's actually happening even though it isn't actually happening. Now I know you didn't come here this morning to get your theology from Rolling Stone magazine, or from the Rolling Stones themselves, or from the Rosetta Stone, or the Blarney Stone, or any other stone. But this admission of fear, this insight from a secular source, actually helps us to understand why the Lord did what he did 2,000 years ago. Because God is gracious, and because God is merciful, he chose, listen now, he chose not to leave us in our hopelessness. He chose not to leave us in our fear. Instead, he offers the gift of salvation from sin. He offers freedom from bondage. He offers offers a solution for eternal separation. And he offers a life that is abundant and full of joy and peace and contentment. And that offer is literally and only embodied in Jesus Christ. So on that night, When our Savior came to the earth as a baby, the clear message that was communicated from heaven to mankind is Jesus is the answer to your fear. Jesus is the answer to your fear. It's all throughout the incarnation. Fear is the one visceral emotion that lasts through everybody. If you study the Matthew text and the Luke text, you will see that everybody had moments of fear. And because of that, because that moment, as wonderful it was, was so full of fear for the people that were seeing it, now we can connect what happens in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago to living in Wisconsin in 2017 because our world has the same type of fear that was present in Bethlehem. We're going to talk about that this morning. So what God says here, and it's four simple words, what God says here and tells us, by extension, 2,000 years later, is so simple and so obvious. Listen now. It's so simple and it's so obvious that our human response may be inclined to mock it. Our human response may be to say, that's trite, and it's ridiculous, and it's almost insensitive. Because our brain tells us that being told, do not be afraid, 
even by the Lord, is a nice concept, and it's easy to hear, but it is much harder to accept, and it is much harder to trust and to live out. I'm sure every one of us this morning would love to not be afraid. We'd love to not be afraid, but the facts are the facts, and our situation in the world is alarming, and it's tenuous, and the realities that tell us to be scared. But I will pray this morning that, that we will hear this message, do not be afraid. It is a powerful, applicable, awesome message from the Lord directly to us. And once we understand the source of our fears, once we understand the sufficiency of the Lord to remove those fears, we will not want to do anything but trust the Lord completely. So I want you to take some notes this morning. I love it when I see people looking down and writing. So I want to encourage you this morning, write some things down. We're going to take a couple minutes. I'll try to keep it brief. And we're going to talk about four kinds of fear. Because there are four kinds of fear in the Christmas account. The first two are fears that are experienced by people who don't trust the Lord. People that don't know the Lord. People that aren't walking with the Lord. And that includes unsaved people in the text. And it includes people who had not given their lives to God fully. They knew about God. Many people in the world this morning know about God. Billions of people believe in God. They just don't believe in Jesus. So they have a knowledge, everybody, Romans says, that has ever lived has a knowledge of God just through creation. Even if they've never heard the gospel, they know there's a God who, who is orderly, who has created this, and who loves us. They know that. Romans says every person's accountable. So people believe in God, but they don't really live for God. So the first two fears we're going to look at are people who didn't know the Lord. The second fears that we're going to look at, second set, are by people who trusted the Lord and loved the Lord, but they were having their faith stretched to new levels. So everybody in this room can place themselves somewhere on that scale this morning. And if we're honest about it and open to what the Spirit wants to teach us and and encourage us with this morning, this will be a very important study. So we're going to go out of chronological order in in the account. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, which I hope you have already turned to. And let's read verses 1 to 3. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. There are two groups of people that are fearful here in verse 3. The first person that's fearful is King Herod. The second person that's fearful, or group of people, is all Jerusalem with him. Now you see that the word in the English, in the verse 3, is is the word troubled. It's the Greek word. I don't bore you with a lot of Greek words, but I will this morning with a couple. It's the word terasso. Terasso. Now, terasso in the Greek means that the person's spirit is struck with fear. 
that the person is restless and agitated, that there's a churning in their spirit. There's a, there's a, a restlessness and a, oh, what am I going to do? And, and fear is gripping. That's what Herod and the people of Jerusalem are feeling. They're feeling terrasso. They're feeling an agitation in their soul. Now, why is Herod troubled? Well, Herod is fearful, first of all, because he's scared that he's going to lose his power and his control. He hears the wise men. They come, they show up, and, and they say, hey, we're looking for the king that's just been born, the, the new king of the Jews. And Herod obviously doesn't like that news because he's the current king. And now these guys show up and they say, we've been studying, we saw his star, and, and there's been a new king that's been born, and we want to come and, and worship him. Now this is a threat to Herod's kingdom. But the insight that I got this week is, it's not a threat to Herod's kingdom as king of Israel. Because if there's a new king that's been born, and his whole purpose in life is to become the king, well then, why would that be bad for Israel? That would be wonderful for Israel if heaven sent a new king. So the threat is not to Herod's physical kingdom. The head, uh, threat is to Herod's personal kingdom. The one where he's powerful. The one where he's in charge. The one where he rules however he wants. The one where he controls people and events and agendas and throws his weight around and answers to nobody. You see, often in the subtle recesses of our heart, this is how we want to live. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. So we protect our little kingdoms and we try to, to keep our power and our control. Let me tell you some of the ways this can play out. It can play out in our marriages. As we try, if we're not walking with the Lord, we try to control each other and emotionally manipulate each other and play mind games and exert authority and, and criticize and do all sorts of things that are designed to, to exert power and authority. It happens in our families, in parenting. Sometimes we speak a little louder and we're domineering with the kids because we want them to get the message that we're the parent and you're not. You ever uttered that sentence? Unfortunately, I have many times. I'm the parent and you're not. Like, that's not obvious. Or we withhold affection and we, and we don't comfort and we don't encourage and we don't speak words of praise and we don't tell uh, the daughter that she's wonderful and beautiful and we love her and respect her. We don't tell the son that we're proud of him and that he's, uh, he's becoming a man and we, we don't do those things. We withhold that because we want to show that we're in charge. It happens in our work and relationships as we work the angles and we talk about people and we play games and we maintain the upper hand somehow in our little kingdom at work or our little kingdom of our, our inner circle of relationships. It even happens within the body of Christ. Unfortunately, it happens far too often in the body of Christ. Power plays, gossip, little conversations on the side, underlying agendas. I've been in churches that had 30 people on Sunday. I've been in churches that have 6,000 people on Sunday. And you know what? There's not one bit of difference. Little kingdoms, little, little things that we're trying to control. Now I want you to notice, look back at the text of verses 8 and 16. Because Herod tries to maintain his power and his control with manipulation and anger. First he says to the wise men, oh yeah, that's great, new king, wonderful. Tell me where, when you find him, tell me where he is. I want to come worship him too, liar. Not telling the truth. 
And then when he realizes that the Magi aren't coming back, he goes and he tries to kill every baby, every boy under two. Trying to eliminate the threat to his personal kingdom. He's so consumed by fear, and instead of being able to keep his control, he fails. And you know what? Herod becomes a footnote in history. He's trying to get rid of the one who changes the eternal destiny of billions and billions of people. And he can't. Because he doesn't have control. When we are fearful of losing power and control, listen now, when we're fearful of losing power and control over people and circumstances, that needs to be the moment when we understand that that is a false narrative. We never have control. Now hear that. We never have control. And when we yield that desire to control and we confess our pride and our sin and our lack of power to save ourselves and we trust the one who came to save us, he will save us. But if we resist, and some of you may be resisting this morning, if we resist, it puts us in opposition to him. And like Herod, that's a losing position. So we can be fearful that we're going to lose power and control, but the honest truth is we don't have any power and control. Then there's the second group of people in verse 3. At the same time Herod's troubled, it says the people of Jerusalem, all the city, is, is troubled. And they're fearful of the truth. They're fearful of the truth. A- at first I thought it was they're fearful of the unknown. But as I continue to study, I thought it's not that it's unknown. They know exactly what's going on. They're fearful of the truth. They hear this news about a new king, and they knew enough about Israel's prophecies to know that if the Magi had come to worship him, this was not just some new politician. Now, it's easy to miss in the text. I think I've missed it for years. But the people were troubled that these wise scientists, who are Gentiles of all things, they're not even Jews, they come and they not only recognize that this is going to be their king too, But they also indicate this is the Messiah. The people are blind to it. For 400 years, God hasn't spoken. And it's been silent. And it's not like Israel had cared because they had been scattered to Babylon and Assyria. And the prophets had come along and Isaiah started to preach. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the congregation was empty. Isaiah was speaking. There's nobody to listen. And those who did hear him said, we don't care. So God went silent for four centuries. And all of a sudden, one night in Bethlehem, unto us a child is born, comes true. And the people hear this news, and they're troubled by it. The people are not fearful of what they don't know. They're fearful of what they do know. Don't you you think most people kind of live that way? It's not like the truth is not out there. It's not like the Bible has been taught in this country and in this world. It's not like Jesus Christ is hidden. I mean, it's really not. And it's not like people aren't fully aware of right and wrong and their responsibility to each, even if they don't want to admit it. So the issue for many is for what it was for the people of Jerusalem. They hear the truth and they reject him, or they hear the truth and they respond with faith. And it's interesting, when we get to Luke 2.18 in a minute, 
it says that those who heard the news that the shepherds brought, now this is, again, out of order. So the shepherds are first. They are, on the night that Jesus is born, they get the word. We'll look at it in a minute. They get the word from heaven, and they go around telling people, hey, we just saw the Son of God. He's been born in that stable over there, and, 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 and we want to tell you about it. This is the greatest news, good news of great joy for all people. And it says in Luke 2.18 that the people were astonished. And that they were amazed, and they took it into their heart. Now, days, weeks, months, we don't know when the wise men show up. But there's some time that passes. And the Magi show up, and they say, we're here to find that king of the Jews that was born. And now, the people who had already heard about it, now they have to decide what to do with the facts. That may be your position this morning. You're curious. Maybe you're even interested. You want to know more about the birth of Jesus Christ. You want to, you're kind of drawn to the fact that he came to save us from our sin. But, but you've heard that before, and you're putting off the decision. You, you hear that you're supposed to trust him as your Savior, and that that'll change your life. But that's exactly the reason why you've hesitated. You're scared of that. You're scared what it's going to mean. And I want you to hear firsthand firsthand from someone who has personally experienced God's salvation, there is nothing like having the death sentence removed. There is nothing like having your sins forgiven and your soul cleansed and having your heart and mind transformed and having your desires changed and having your purpose fulfilled and having a calling on your life and having your future eternally secured. There is nothing you will find in the world like that. And it only happens through Jesus. And the devil wants to fill your mind with that fear. Well, if I do that, Paul, if I trust in Jesus, I won't be in control and I'll have to give up what I love and my life won't be my own. Let me tell you something. Your life is not your own. It's an illusion. If I was so in control of my own life, if I could say, well, I'm going to be my own God and I'm going to control my own life, then I would be a billionaire. And I would have perfect relationships and I would never work and I would have no health problems and I would not worry about a thing. If I could control my life, I don't know what I'd be doing. But I'd have a lot more money and a lot more fun. And I'd never, ever worry about anything. Don't believe the lie of the enemy and don't fear losing what is not even yours in the first place. Especially when you can have what God offers. And if that intrigues you and you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ or you're away from God and you want to talk after the service about what it means to turn your life over to the Lord and trust in Him, we'll be up here. We're going to have a time at the end where you can respond to that. Because it's not worth it to leave and be unsure. Now, if you're saying, well, Paul, that, that's a fairly compelling argument, but I'm still not sure whether I should trust the Lord. Well, let's look at two other groups of people. Turn back to chapter 1, or maybe you're still on that page. And let's see two groups that experienced a different kind of fear. These are people that were trusting the Lord and ended up being blessed beyond measure. Look back at chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18. Birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now this all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, verse 24, woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now turn over to Luke chapter 1. And let's see, we've seen what the angel said to Joseph. Now let's see what he says to Mary. We'll just read a little part of this because it's a long text. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, we know this account well, I hope. Joseph and Mary are visited by an angel separately. He tells them that their lives and their future are going to be altered in a way that they could never have possibly imagined that their lives are going to be changed, that these engaged teenagers who had never been together physically are now expecting a baby. And that baby just so happens to be God coming to earth in the form of a person. Now you talk about a loss of control. Talk about dealing with the unknown. See, for Joseph and Mary... There is a substantial and understandable fear of change. There's a fear of change. A few of us like change. Few of us gravitate to change. But normally when we talk about change, we're talking about going with a different cell phone carrier. Or we're talking about maybe having to move because our, our job changed our location. But, but these two are not only experiencing a complete turn in their plans and their dreams, they're bearing the overwhelming weight of being the earthly parents to the Savior of the world. And add to that the the complete loss of comfort, the complete loss of security, the skepticism and the criticism that they're going to face with trying to explain how Mary's pregnant because nobody's going to buy that story. And then becoming parents to, uh, uh, excuse me, becoming pariahs to their friends and family because they're going to be outcasts at this point. Joseph, why in the world would you marry her? Clearly, she's not pure. What are you thinking? Well, but it's of the Lord. Yeah, right. Come on, Joseph. Well, you know what? Let's just not hang out with Joseph and Mary anymore. And then the impact on their relationship and the inexperience of raising a child. I mean, no pressure, right? makes what Herod was dealing with look like a cakewalk. So what do we do when we face change that is substantial and is life 
altering. Is the fear that we really are feeling actually anxiety? Is it a concern about the uncertainty? And do we use that uncertainty as a pretext for not trusting the Lord? See, the strength of Joseph and Mary is their unhesitant, oh, look at it, study it this week, their unhesitant acceptance of God's plan and their unwavering competence to joyfully move forward in complete faith. Now, for you and I as believers, this is our example because nothing, nothing, nothing you and I will face this week rises to the standard of how they had to trust. There's no way. This is, a, this is a level of faith. This is a level of confidence in the word of the Lord that I cannot understand. And to go a step further, they not only trust, but they do so with awe and humility that they get to be utilized of the Lord and that they get to have their lives altered because God has chosen them to be recipients of this joy. Herod feels, fears losing power over his little kingdom. And the people fear the truth. But Joseph and Mary understandably fear change. And then turn over a page to chapter 2. Look at the last group, the shepherds. Verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were... Tell me the next two words. Terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, there are those four words again, say them out loud with me. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born to you a Savior who's Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God on the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then. See this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. I believe the shepherds in that moment, in verse, what is it, verse 9, they feared in that moment the supernatural. Now, as we said a couple minutes, a couple weeks ago, don't get intimidated by that word. Don't dismiss that word because all we mean by saying supernatural is something that is not of this word. Not aliens, not spaceships, not UFOs. We're talking about something straight from heaven. This message, these angels come straight from heaven and they have the message And as they fill the sky, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. It says that the shepherds, you read the words with me, they were terribly frightened. The Greek word is phobeo. It's the word from which we get the word phobia. And it literally means to be terrified. What terrifies you this morning? Terrorism. There's the word. 
cancer, divorce, job issues. For me, a big one is snakes. I don't like snakes. What's your phobia? What, what terrifies you? What, what strikes fear in your heart? We all have genuine fears that impact our thinking. The shepherds in this moment, what are they fearful of? This is the greatest news ever given to mankind. But it says they're terribly frightened. They're fearful of something they can't explain. This supernatural appearance and it has tremendous spiritual significance attached to it that, that God has come, that the Savior has come, that God has become flesh, that, that He has come down to us to offer us salvation. And it's happening right now, this night, and you're being told about it, and you need to go find out about it. Now, to their credit, they go straight there. And then they go tell everybody. But initially, though, they are terrified by the supernatural event. But here's what I love about the shepherds that I've never seen in 53 years, 30 years of preaching. I've never seen this. Instead of shying away from what God was supernaturally doing, they ran toward it. Like David, when Goliath stands there and curses the name of God, and Saul and his little puny cronies are sitting back going, we don't know what to do. David says, you know what? You're not talking about my God that way. Grabs a stone, a little slingshot, little David, man. He's like, and he didn't stand there and go, I'm going to get you, Goliath. I love the text. It says he ran toward Goliath. No, you're not talking about my God that way. Whoop. The shepherds see something that would blow us away. The sky. I, I, I'm blown away when I look at the stars in the sky. God, you're amazing. Now imagine this whole sky. Don't let the Christmas cards influence you now. The whole sky is full of angels. And they're all saying the same thing. Glory to God. The Savior's been born. That would throw you to your knees. And you'd go when the angels disappear. Did anybody else see that? Let's just stay right here. We got sheep. It's quiet. Nobody will ever know. Let's go right now. Let's go. We got to go find this baby. This is awesome. Let's go. And, and, and I don't think they're like... They're running. Let's go. Let's get to town. Come on. Come on, guys. Leave the sheep. Forget the sheep. They don't matter. Go. We got to find this baby. And they run into town, and they see the baby, and they fall before him, and they worship him, and they're overwhelmed, and they don't say, all right, well, back to the sheep. They go all throughout town. It's the middle of the night. Everybody's asleep. Hey, we got something to tell you. Savior's been born. We've waited so long for this. God spoke. To we saw angels. It was unbelievable. You, will not. you got to know about this. And look at the text, verse 18. It says that everybody heard it and they wondered what was being told to them. Sometimes we are fearful. I'll finish. Sometimes we are fearful of the supernatural and we hold back. We don't engage with what the Lord is doing in our midst because we're nervous about being part of something that we can't explain. 
Something beyond ourselves. And listen, that's the very definition of faith. Faith is believing what you can't see and you can't always explain it because it's the Lord's doing the work. And He's not bound by my reality. He even says to Mary, nothing is impossible with me. So are you trusting the Lord and living for Him only in the realm of what you can control? Or are you trusting the Lord and living for Him where it requires faith? Where it doesn't feel natural? Where you don't have a say in it? And rather than living in hesitancy and anxiety and fear, you're saying, I am not going to play it safe. I am going to trust the Lord because His Word is good. And when I hold back, I'm not experiencing any comfort and joy. I'm experiencing discontentment and and lack of peace and fear and depression. Listen, as believers and children of God, people who are filled with the Spirit of God, we should actually be craving the supernatural. And I want you to hear me very clearly. I'm not talking about mystical, weird Jumping around and barking like dog. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the powerful work of heaven among us. Jesus was the work of heaven among us. His name will be Emmanuel. God with us. God puts his own spirit into us as believers and indwells us and fills us. Now we're going to live powerless lives. We're going to live. We're going to live normal, natural, human lives. We have the Spirit of God in us. There should be all kinds of supernatural work that God's doing. Heavenly work, work we can't explain, work that God's doing in our midst because we are living for Him. Look, one more thing. I closed my Bible. I shouldn't have. God forgive me. Go back to chapter two for a minute. Look at verses 17 and 20. We'll pray. Notice how the shepherds, once they heard the news, their fear changed to excitement and passion and joy and praise and an open witness. It's like when we sang that first song this morning. Did you notice the difference? I didn't plan on saying that this morning. We kind of came in, joy to the world, the Lord is come. What time is this service over? Who are the Packers playing today? Distracted, kind of, listen, I'm not picking. I was the same way, I think. But then we said, what are we singing about? And the volume of our singing went up, what, four times? And all of a sudden, the room was full of joy. We have to anticipate and crave the supernatural. Once they heard the message, once they heard God's plans, everything changed. Their hearts changed. Watching over sheep was never going to be the same again because they had experienced the Savior. And once you experience the Savior, your life is never the same again. Jesus said it himself, I've come to bring you life. And that life is abundant. So do not be afraid. 
because I came here to eliminate that fear and to give you a joyful, confident life. Do you have it? If you don't, now's the time to yield your heart to him.